Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the host. And this week, I've got another really interesting guest. It's Stephanie Bell, who's the director of the Metamorphosis Project at Out Memphis, which is doing very important work in um, addressing homelessness and other issues with the LGBTQ youth here in Memphis. So, Stephanie, welcome to Memphis Metropolis. Hello. Thank you for having me today. So let's just start off with... um, just tell us a little bit about Out Memphis, you know, a brief history of it, and then some of the programs and services you offer in the community. Okay. So Out Memphis is the LGBTQ plus community center, pretty much for the tri-state area, us, Arkansas, Mississippi, um, you know, in the little area here. And LGBTQ plus stands for lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, and the Q is for individuals who are questioning where they fall on the spectrum within the community. And of course it goes way beyond that. <laughs> but those are like, those are like the key ones right there. When most people are talking about the community, I'll say LGBTQ. Um, but Out Memphis has been here for over 30 years, originally established in 1989. Most people may know it by its previous name of the Memphis Gay and Lesbian Community Center. If I'm not mistaken, it was around 2000. Between 14 16 when they changed the name to Out Memphis. And but overall, it's just it started out as a place for our community to have the hangout for those who may not have been interested in going to the bars, you know, wanted an environment that they could just hang out, talk, and interact with each other. And this over the years has expanded to a general social service organization that has given a plethora of uh, programming, resources, and things for anyone that's age 13 going all the way up to, you know, senior citizens that's in the community. Uh, we have different groups. Most of our groups now, because of the pandemic, is virtual. But we have uh, Perpetual Trans is one of our groups for trans individuals. We have, um, we are families for those individuals who are younger than 13 because we have prison for those who are 13 to 17. And then for those who are 18 to uh, 24, we have Gen Q. We also do trans work at these shops here, which is pretty much virtual. Um, We also have, um, which two of the groups are kind of on hold because they're not meeting in person, but, um, and it's for men, loving men or men of color, or, you know, anyone in that spectrum who identifies gay or, or men loving men. And they normally would meet on Sundays from four to six, but because of the pandemic, they did not want to meet in person. So it's not meeting right now. And we have two people for our Latinx community. Um, we also do HIV testing on Mondays through Mondays and Wednesdays from six to nine. We actually kept that going during the pandemic. So it, you don't have to be a part of our community to get tested. You just come in and get the free test and you know get your results and go from there um that's amazing yeah that's a lot of that's a lot of services so and I was going to ask you how you were how you were impacted by I mean, you answered this a little bit how you were impacted by the pandemic because I know that's that out Memphis is such an important source of support for community members and I'm sure some of that is um you know in person, fellowshipping, um, as it were, um, you know, just getting together in person, like, just like we've missed all of our friends. I'm sure some of the, the groups have, that's an important element. That's actually like some of the older groups is fine for our younger groups. They haven't really cared for like the virtual meetings and stuff. They wanted more of the in-person and, you know, even with us kind of us getting to the point, we're opening back up. The Delta variant came and right when we're getting to the point to actually start having some of those youth groups here over here at the youth emergency center, we had to pull back and rethink it like, Oh, we got to go back to virtual because of the Delta variant, because a lot of our young community members 
are have autoimmune deficiency disorders and things going on, which, you know, putting them at risk. A lot of them still aren't vaccinated. A lot of them are not trusting the vaccination. So even though we're encouraging, we're trying to figure out ways to have this space open for them as well as giving them their services as, and keeping them safe. But when the pandemic first happened, we kind of just did what we always do at Out Memphis. We had something thrown at us at the last minute and we came together as staff. Those of us in leadership roles came together, took the ideas of the staff and rolled with it. We know we needed to remain open because our community members was losing jobs. We knew we had many that were already unemployed, that was homeless, that was going to need food services. They were going to need assistance with paying bills and stuff. And that's how our Outlast program began. So if you're 25 or older during the pandemic, and we still continue in the Outlast program as well, they were able to apply for a food voucher. So, so we give them like a gift card or they could come in and get assistance with like transportation needs. And they get X amount of dollars to go towards like either putting them up in a hotel or going towards their rent. Um, and then we also, during the pandemic, we were open four days a week in which we rotated staff to kind of like keep exposure for those staff members who were at risk but still want to contribute. Um, I was one of those individuals, but I still chose to, you know, come and work. So I was helping doing the food kits and then the other person on staff and they would help pass out the food kits. So we had food and hygiene kits in which we passed out the individuals. And if they needed like any other resources, we would just like, you know, connect them to like other providers or whatever they needed that we did not provide there. And it was a, a huge success. We stopped like around about the, I think like 14th, 15th of May, because at that time we decided, you know, it's a good time to remodel the building, paint, do some, do some small updates and stuff. So when we get to the point to reopening and during that time frame, there were a lot of sad individuals that we were stopping. So maybe this is something we'll continue again once we get the building back in order. But it was amazing just to see the community as a whole come together to support us, um, making donations, bringing food, dropping off, organization that's had abundance of things they were bringing over to give to us to add to our um, little kits that we were handing out. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, like a lot of organizations really had to pivot and, you know, be resilient and responsive in ways I'm sure you never anticipated. Well, let's talk about, um, about your work around homeless. Of course, you know, homelessness is generally a big issue in Memphis and around the country. And I think it's, you know, more so because housing has gotten so expensive, especially in metropolitan areas. seems like, you know, every week there's an article in the New York Times about, you know, homeless camps in the Los Angeles area, among other cities and how communities. And so, and it's, you know, just a lack of of, of affordable housing among many, many other factors. But, and I I didn't realize until I read about your work, though it's not really surprising that um, LGBTQ youth are particularly housing insecure um, and in danger, and uh, homeless or in danger of becoming homeless. So, talk a little bit about that. Why? Why? What? T- t- talk about what the problem is here in Memphis. Well, here in Memphis, I mean, it's a lot of things, but the key thing is just like a lot of people grow up in religious backgrounds. The, the economic status of the home that they're growing up in, a lot of people get put out time. They turn 18. You know, their family may be okay with them being part of the community, but, you know, you're 18, you're another mouth of feed, you're not working, you know, you don't have any skills to help contribute, so you got to go. And that's one reason, like I said, a lot of them, because of religious beliefs, families don't you know, want to interact with that child, have that child around the other children, or just just like that difference of belief and you know people go through trauma you know if you have a parent who is going through something and you know parents tend to take the trauma out on their children you know they grew up in an abusive household you know those things too have led to like a lot of the individuals when they get out on their own they don't have the skill set or know how to overcome their barriers to actually be able to function so you know they make an apartment but they don't know how to pay their rent or they don't know what to do if they get behind if they lose their job or there's conflict with the landlord and their idea is to not pay rent not knowing that hey i'm gonna get kicked out i gotta you know pay this rent regardless 
those are some of the you know key reasons. Um, employment. A lot of our youth, especially our trans youth, they may gain employment. They get in environments that are transphobic or not affirming because of whether what part of the spectrum they identify on. And so, you know, they'll leave that job or they'll get fired or get have a confrontation and they're fired. And so it's harder to find something else. And, you know, I've encountered some of my trans youth, you know, with body dysphoria and just not the ability to be their true true self has really, you know, kind of hindered them from wanting to get out and put themselves out there with employment. So, so what is that? Go just one of the things I try to do in the show is sort of define terms that people might not know. So, what is that? So, body dysphoria is like for a lot of individuals, their body isn't looking as they see themselves, and they have a lot of, you know, I, I would basically say like self esteem around the body. They don't like the way they look, so that person may not they be less inclined to shower, so they may have hygiene issues, or you know. They just feel awkward and out of place, like in their body, in their skin and in the clothing they wear. So, it, you know, it creates, it creates other issues around just being able to function in society. I, OK, I can imagine that would I can imagine that. So the um, so when youth become homeless, um, I mean, what happens to is there like usually I mean, couch surfing or staying with friends or. Um, I can imagine going onto the street carries it's a whole new set of risk and vulnerabilities for this youth. For the youth. It, it does. It, it really does. I mean, there's the couch surfacing. There's those individuals who, you know, may hook up with the older individual, start sleeping with them just for a place to stay. And then when that person loses interest, they're back on the street. There's the ones that go into like sex work. And in which I'm not knocking sex work, you know, that's a form of income, but, you know, they're not being protective. You know, there's risk to come with that if you're a trans individual and doing sex work. You know, there's there's so much, so many different little pieces around it that makes like being out there on the street unsafe. You know, there's youth that live in their car because they don't feel like a lot of the shelters here are affirming or, you know, they don't feel comfortable because they're younger than a lot of the other individuals in the shelters. Um so those are like some of like the key things right there that makes it hard for them. And that was one of the reasons that led out Memphis to start the Metamorphosis Project. You know, we had we've had previous staff members that experienced homelessness. So, you know, that's that aspect. You know, I went through it. You know, what can we do to help? There's the aspect of, you know, we had youth coming into the center, hanging out, sleeping, crashing, you know, there during the daytime, during open hours, you know, and you know, it just was. The time was, you know, make let's start to make a difference in this project. So Will Bat, who was our director at the time, and Stephanie Reyes kind of came when she came on. They sat down, got together, put the ideals for like the Metamorphosis Project, reached out to um, supporters in the community, um, working with uh, Dell Livingston to create the um, blueprints for this building, and it just took off from there. From supporters, you know, sustaining donors. You know, people doing events to raise money to help build this building. So, okay, so so let's so the, so the Metamorphosis Project is a is a is a is a residential housing project for LGBTQ youth, correct? It's, it's pretty much everything dealing with LGBTU youth emergency services here in Memphis, well, out Memphis. So, it's the drop-in center slash shelter. Is our rapid rehousing program where we have a uh, rental assistance for a year. Is any like emergency services where you like need food assistance, you need transportation assistance, you just need case management, you need connection to other resources, or you need something from our donation or food pantry slash uh, clothes closet. So it's everything youth. Mm-hmm. And um, so who? Um, so talk a little bit about about the. Sounds like you offer so it's a shelter and how long can people how long can people stay in the shelter? So the shelter portion they're here for thirty days and during that thirty day time for period, if we have any of our ten slots for our rapid rehousing program available, then they'll take on one of those slots. But let's say for instance those slots are filled, but we have you here during that time frame, you'll work with the case manager and one of our peer advocates to you know, get a job, save up money and start working towards either 
having finding a family friend that'll let you stay with them to support you until you have enough save up to get your own place in which you'll still continue to work with us. Or if you are somebody who may just need help doing the application, need somewhere for a versus state, but you have your money saved up, then, you know, we'll help you through that process to apply and find a place that's affordable with you. And then you can continue to work with us and get the other supports as you need it. So just also along the lines of sort of defining terms. Mm -hmm. So so rapid rehousing, I believe, is a federal program Mm -hmm. that helps I mean, not just youth, although obviously you have a a youth focused program helps people who enter homelessness get out quickly so they don't become chronic homeless. And so you sound like you have access to some of that um, and are are able to help people get, you know, a voucher or something similar to get them into housing quickly. Is that is that pretty much it in a nutshell? Pretty much in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, HUD funded. You know, we follow the HUD guidelines. They have like specific guidelines for youth. Uh, you have to be um, 18 to 24. You have to be literally homeless, you know, couch surfacing in the street, living on the streets, um, staying, you know, in your car or something along those lines to be placed into like a rapid rehousing program. Um, it's anywhere from uh, 12 to 24 months of assistance. If for some reason, you know, we see that you may be ready to exit earlier, we can exit you earlier. You can exit at any point in time. You don't have to stay for the full year. But most of our participants end up staying for a full year because of so many barriers. And when, you know, they get to a certain point, they still haven't met met certain life goals or they may not have employment or they may have like mental health disorders that's causing, you know, other problems and issues. So they still can't gain employment. So now it's time to connect them to mental health resources and go from there. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking to Stephanie Bell from Out Memphis, who's the director of their Metamorphosis Project. And we're talking about homelessness um, among LGBTQ youth and some of the programs that Out Memphis has to address that. So one actually wanted to um, ask you about that because I know um, there are, um, in the homeless community generally, there are, you know, are mental illness and substance abuse and some other issues that contribute to um, homelessness. It sounds like you have some of that in the use you serve, but that you've got programs in place to help connect people to resources. Mm-hmm. So one of our programs is our life skills program. So with that, we do different life skills where it's around like how to cook, how to, you know, uh, clean your apartment, how to interact with roommates. If you have a roommate situation, um, we do a annual job fair this pet well this year we did it virtually but usually it's in person but we do a job fair that targeting those 18 to 24 and companies and organizations that's willing to work with us so if anyone on here is listening and you know you would like to work with us please uh, reach out to us at info at outmemphis.org as far as like helping our individuals become employed but once they like, like I said, they do the life skills and we have another program called Power On. So with Power On, it's connected to the life skills. They complete so many life skills. They get a job and part of the hub requirement, they have to submit their pay stubs showing that they are employed. So they submit their pay stubs. And at, once they reach certain goals, they are allowed to get a computer and, and or a cell phone. So that kind of alleviates, you know, some of the barriers of like, you know, I don't have access to a computer. I don't have access to this. I don't have access to that. And then also here we have computer labs. So if you may have a computer, but you don't have internet access, you come here, use internet access. If you don't have access to both, you can come here and use both. Like we even have like a cell phone charging station. So because, you know, it's important in those first three days of working with them to have communication with them. So, you know, it doesn't help if you're on the streets and you can't charge your cell phone and the case manager can't reach you. So we have a charging station here. Um, like I said, we thought, have, thought of everything, obviously. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, we have a full-time case manager and a part-time case manager. We're in the process of hiring for another case manager. So if you are have experience in case management and you're looking for a job as well, check out Out Memphis website. We have a career section, but 
Yeah, I will. Um, it, this this is obviously the show's on WYXR, but it's also a podcast, okay. and I'll put links to that in the show notes for people that listen to it that way. But what about y- y- younger youth? I'm sure that families, sadly, are putting out younger youth, um, or younger youth are finding themselves in, if not put out, uh, very traumatic situations. And it sounds like metamorphosis, the shelter doesn't support them, but I guess you support them through other services. How, mm-hmm. what do you do for those, for, for those youth? Well, group support wise, we have prisms for those 13 to 17. Um, if the parent reach out, email us or call us, ask for resources, we direct and guide them to different therapists here that works with the community. But if someone calls and say they are homeless and they're in that 13 to 17 Unfortunately, we have to call DHS and, you know, report the state and they have to go into the system and they go from there. But usually if it's an adult calling, I'll talk to that adult and I'll explain to them the process. And I'll say, if this is someone that you can take in, someone that you can care for, because this is a family loved one, that would be the better option than sending them to us. And then we turn them over to state and then they may either end back at that environment they're not wanting to be in or they could, you know, end up in the system. So. Unfortunately, we're in an area where we cannot provide services for those in that sense. But if someone comes over here that's 13 to 17, you know, we do have a hot meal of the day. You know, I don't mind them coming in, eating, taking a shower or, you know, um, grabbing something real quick and then heading back out. Because, you know, you can't really have youth and adults because technically 18 to 24 are adults in the same space. So, you know, you know, if you need something real quick, get it. And then, then I have to walk you back out, but because, you know, state laws or whatever, but overall, you know, I'm not going to pass somebody away because they come to the door and say they're hungry or they need hygiene supplies because, you know, at the end of the day, you're still a young person in need. Of course. So because this is a show about the built environment, I want to talk a little bit about the building. Okay. Like, where is it? And um, what, I mean, you mentioned a couple of the things um, and I'll post some pictures on social media when I post it, but where is it? And what was the process like? I remember maybe way back in the day, there was some, you know, controversy from the neighborhood, but I'm sure that's all been worked out and, and it's probably, you know, in the middle of the community. So talk a little bit about the building, where it is and, um, and, and all of that. Okay. Well, we're on Southern Ave across from the railroad track. So if you just keep down Cooper, when you get to the railroad track, go to it. When you go to the roundabout, you uh, keep veer to the right. And when you go down there and you hit on Castilla, then take Castilla to uh, Southern. And here we are. Um, We're on, I believe, three or four lots. Um, So we have space to expand. We have space if we want to have like outdoor activities. And then once you come in and park and walk into the building, when you first come in, um, it's just a, a very welcoming and homing environment. You have like the desk with the receptionist area for like a volunteers or a peer advocate or whichever staff is working that area. Then you have like the living room area where you just like sit, hang out, watch TV. We have a classroom for like our life skills or anything else that's hosted that needs to be or staff meeting. Um, then we have like the kitchen and laundry room area. So we have a full kitchen where either staff, volunteers, or even our youth, we tell them if you want to cook and you want to cook for yourself or cook for participants, you're more than welcome to. Um, laundry, they can come do laundry anytime. They just need to call and make an appointment with one of our peer advocates. Um, we have two offices, my office and then the case managers share and the peer advocate share office. And then continuing on the back into the back of the building, you have a the area that we have set up for the computer lab area and then across from it you have our storage room and then we have a full full bath and restroom area that has like a shower so if you're overnight staff or youth that's coming through just need to take a shower you can take a shower you know and you know toilet and all those in there and then you go into the courtyard and in the courtyard we have like a little garden area and then that's where you get into the four bedrooms and each individual bedroom that person can control their air as well as they have their own bathroom. So they don't have to come out of their room to come over here to the main building to shower. They have their own privacy. And then we have also a handicap accessible room. 
And then, like I said, we have like the garden area. So they want fruit. I mean, fresh vegetables off of there. They can pick it, eat it or cook it however they want. And then we have a gate exiting out going to like to to back to the parking lot and then to like just the open area. So if they are trying to get out and don't really want to come through the building, they can just go through that back gate to kind of give them some autonomy. So that sounds, the whole thing sounds great. So, so it's four people can live in the shelter at any time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. All right. So Stephanie, last question, um, sort of talk, thinking about sort of, you know, outside of Memphis, well, maybe not, or I'm thinking about it at the federal as well as a local level, like in terms of, you know, federal policy or more programs, like what do you, what do you need? Not, in terms of donations, volunteers, sort of bigger picture, do you need like a the federal government to designate housing money just for this? I know this is kind of a national model. You're probably working with organiza- other organizations. And so what are those sort of big, bigger picture wants from the government and, you know, the country to support this work, which is obviously very important? For me, I think the bigger picture is, national awareness on youth homelessness like you know people attending conferences like youth point sources like point source excuse me one of the big conferences that talks about youth homelessness um true colors day is like the national day to bring awareness on youth homelessness specifically the lgbt youth getting people getting active in their community and i think the biggest thing though is parents not kicking their kids out because of their who how they identify and, you know, working with your kids early on, giving them those skill sets. So when they do turn 18, if you're going to put them out, put them out with success, not put them out for for failure. And I just like I don't know, federal government area, like just overall, like changing the laws for like the LGBT community. Like that is still like a, the biggest barrier because people don't realize making no decision, no upper level decision and saying, you know, things around bathroom, things around like, you know, all the different laws that have passed over the years that we've constantly going back and forth with those things affect us long term. And those are some of the things that can put someone in homeless. I mean, cause like, you're not going to want to go to work if, if you're not feeling comfortable to use the restroom, cause you can have to use the restroom throughout the day, you know, or just, you know, not feeling we're Tennessee as a at will state. So, you know, they may be firing you because you're, you're gay, but you know, they could put it on there saying, well, we're just letting you go. Cause we don't want you when overall, you know, that it was because you're LGBTQ plus. So I think like just, there needs to be more laws put in place to protect us. There needs to be more awareness around like the homeless situation, not just for the LGBT youth, but the trans individuals like, that's another demographic, especially the black trans community that is really hit hard when it comes to homelessness. And there isn't a lot of support or a lot of organization that works with that demographic. You know, there are there's a few here. Um, my sister house, you know, doing the tiny homes and everything. But it, it goes greater than that. It, it takes not, you know, because I mean, there's bigotry within like the LGBT community. You know, that's another thing that has to stop like racism and all of that overall so it goes deeper than like a governmental level it goes on an individual level and just changing your viewpoints on like an individual because they love different because you know that saying love is love so that would be a real big game changer people just change how they think and stop being closed-minded well, that could uh, that's a big ask yes, <laughs> for people to be, to be more open-minded, but I'm with you on that. Yeah, I don't think people, you know, realize, I mean, because we've had, you know, some advances like, you know, marriage equality. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize how much discrimination there still is yeah. in the community. And you, you raised the issue about... Um, about homelessness in the trans community generally, mm-hmm. which I know is a huge issue. And I, I I can't imagine, we've got some great people and organizations working in the local homeless infrastructure and shelter infrastructure, but I've got to think that there's um, challenges um, as it relates to trans individuals sort of getting what they need mm-hmm. from that system. Probably discrimination from other homeless individuals, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, that and the shelters itself. I mean, people have, t- I've heard stories of how certain people don't feel comfortable, you know, or having to be placed within the shelter in which the gender they were born with versus how they identify. So it, it's, it's a struggle finding that right space to kind of, you know, make people feel comfortable within the community. 
and making them like safe. That is like right. key thing, safety. Well, Stephanie, this has been great. Um, thank you for coming on to Memphis Metropolis. I've been talking to Stephanie Bell, who's the director of the Metamorphosis Project at Out Memphis, and you're doing great, great work. I want to see the facility. I'm sure you had an open house and I missed it. But Actually, I want to have not yet because of okay. the pandemic. We were going to, and then the pandemic happened. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome to the second half of Memphis Metropolis. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm joined by Cole Bradley, who's the editor of High Ground News, an esteemed anthropologist, and <laughs> and one of our local and one of our regular commentators. So I know, Cole, you weren't expecting that, but I decided to lay, layer on that extra complimentary action. I you. appreciate that. I don't know uh, if esteemed is the right word, but we'll go with it for today. Thanks well, for I having feel, me. <laughs> well, I feel like in terms of the commentators, um, you know, I try to match the commentators up with the subject. And, you know, Austin Harrison, of course, is very knowledgeable about housing. Charlie Santo, of course, everything planning. Um, Ray Brown is on talking about urban design sometimes. And, of course, you're you're kind of a, have a lot of subject matter expertise. But I do sort of think about you in the in terms of the, the stories that have a big people angle. The culture, yeah. Culture and people, absolutely. Yeah. I do I do like people. We're very fascinating things. So this week we're talking about we've been talking about housing. Well the well the, really the danger of, of homelessness, threat of homelessness and LGBTQ youth. And out Memphis has some new programs, the metamorphosis programs and housing options for youth. And that was what we talked about in the first half of the program. So I wanted just to start off, you know, act, I know you you were on the board of the, what's now called Out Memphis for a long time. So you've been involved with the organization, seen it over its history. So I thought you might have some reflections on my discussion with Stephanie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I sat on the board of what is now out Memphis, what was MGLCC, the Memphis Gay and Lesbian Community Center, way on back in like, how, 2007 or so. And I remember in 2007 at the time, there were no paid positions. Everything was completely volunteer. Uh, Will Batts, who eventually rose to become the, the acting uh, executive director for a number of years before moving on and moving out to Texas, uh, Will was still the treasurer at the time. I mean, this was way on back. But I remember us talking about long-term vision and discussing a youth center, uh, discussing housing for for kids, particularly for youth who had been displaced from their homes or forced out of their homes. And I also remember talking about uh, a senior center. So that was also like having senior housing and a senior center were all things that were kind of long-term visions. So, you know, as somebody who was there when it was just a, a beginning discussion, it's amazing to see it actually coming uh, into fruition and it's a, you know, be a physical standing thing and a space for kids. It's really cool. Just right off the bat, I'll say that. It's very cool to see manifest. Um, well, you know, in, in I know in New York, there's senior citizen centers and senior housing specifically to serve that community. I don't know whether there's enough critical mass here or population here to support those kind of, but for sure, that's a need um, and something that I would love to see here. When you have to think, you know, so one thing to consider, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ community, uh, that Memphis, as it is with a lot of things, is a regional hub, right? We're a regional hub for medical. We're a regional hub for transportation. We're also a regional hub for the queer community. There are people who come and for years, I mean, we're talking generations at this point, have come from within a hundred mile radius to Memphis to seek community. And so having a senior center, if you think, well, there's probably not enough, you know, uh, 
elders in this community that are just here in Memphis, I would argue there probably are, but we also have to consider that we're serving a regional community here. There's a great documentary called Small Town Gay Bar. I was just thinking about that. That's a great movie. It's a great documentary and it's so well illustrates because- So so talk about it just so people know and we'll know that- to seek it out because it's really, I was just thinking about it. Great minds think alike. It's its difficult to find. Um, and I would always recommend go to Black Lodge, go up to back Black Lodge here in Memphis, ask them if they have it. If they don't, Matt Martin will, will do his hardest to track it down for you. It's a little difficult to find, but um, Small Town Gay Bar, it basically is a documentary about these very small towns and rural communities that happen to be, a lot of them are in in within a hundred or so miles of Memphis. And these sort of ramshackle bars, makeshift, most of them very much illegal bars that they create just to have some place for community. And there's a scene in that movie in which they're interviewing and they say, the interviewers say to a number of people in secession, Uh, where do you go if you want to go to a club? Like you really want to go out. And all of them say Backstreet in Memphis. Backstreet isn't open anymore, but at the time was a huge dance club. Uh, And so that tells you right there, this it's on film. This, this is a hub, a regional hub for uh, the LGBTQ community in, you know, in this entire Delta region, really. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about place um, in a minute, but, but one of the great things, and that movie I think takes place mainly in Mississippi. And one of the things that's amazing about it is that, you know, people will drive, you know, these are people that live, people who patronize this particular, one particular bar live in very small towns and like it, um, like living in small towns, but they'll drive like an hour or more on Saturday night yep. to the to the county seat, which is a marginally bigger town. You know, they drive from a, a town of ten thousand to a town of twenty five thousand, and all the towns are feed in to this one place. And that's it. it it's really all about community and being comfortable. Yeah. And uh, it's really it's really a great movie. One that's still, I mean, this movie was produced, what would you say, like in the 90s sometime? Yeah. So, but still today, you know, I did a story for High Ground on Last of the Gay Bars here in Memphis. Gay bars are dwindling across the country, uh, which is, you know, a, a whole conversation on space and place. But in that conversation, uh, Tammy Montgomery, who owns Drew's Place, Drew's Bar, uh, s- made a note that, especially for the trans community, which has, uh, you know, the LGB plus community has been accepted much more readily in the last decades than the trans community. The struggle now really exists with the trans community. And, you know, she made note that there are trans women who will come and they will come in their in their camouflage. They'll come in, dressed as uh, the men that the world perceives them to be. And they will change in the bathroom still. They will drive a hundred miles and change clothes in the bathroom to be who they are and to have even just a few hours in that space where they can be who they truly are. So before we, I, I do want to talk more about um, about place, uh, especially as it relates to Memphis. But before we do that, I want to stay on the subject of homelessness for a minute, because when I was listening to the interview again and reflecting on it, it occurred to me that even though we've got a long way to go, that Memphis is moving in the right direction in the ways we serve the homeless population and particularly different kinds of facilities. You know, the hospita- the new hospitality hub has just opened and that has all kinds of interesting services. And it's really, I want to do a show on that actually. It's a rethinking of place in terms of a drop-in center shelter for the homeless population. And also the um, there's a new recuperative care center for homeless people that have been in the hospital and have surgery and need to rehab. Yeah. And that, that's a, a need that I, of course, has existed, never even occurred to me that was a need. And But of course, it makes perfect sense. And that's just recently opened. So that's um, those things are important. Uh, advances. Yeah, absolutely. You know, particularly that that recovery uh, facility, because, 
you know, hospitals are legally obligated to treat to the point of you being stable, but stable and able to function, walk, feed yourself, et cetera, are two very different things. And so, you know, that's it's absolutely critical for people who have experienced emergencies in particular. You know, once you're stabilized, you're you're faced with an entirely different emergency, which is how to care for yourself in a critical health state um, or in a, you know, in a a hard health state, if not critical, because they have released you at that point, but still. Uh, and, you know, something to, of note about the hub. So not only is there the day plaza, which I think is so critical to just have a place that not as just a safe place to get in, get outside of the rain, get out from the heat, charge your phone, do some laundry, but also the, it's a hub for the social services. So there are caseworkers on hand, who greet and meet with people who come through the door. And so there's these wraparound, this offer of wraparound services that people can utilize if they want to get documentation, stuff like that. That stuff's all very important, but having it in one place where it's also acceptable for someone to sit down and relax is really important because a lot of the times, you know, as you well know, built environment does not allow for people to just sit and relax and exist when you are experiencing homelessness. But the, well, and it, say, the other thing I was going to say is tying this back again, specifically to the LGBTQ community, the hub within that day plaza, that facility, they're in the process of working on a new women's shelter that uh, will is a no pay women's shelter. They already have a small home situation that's kind of transitional housing that's open for women and they are definitively uh you know lgbt and, and specifically t friendly they allow trans women who are in need of help and that's important because it's difficult for trans people to find safe uh alternative uh emergency shelter in the city and and transitional housing well, and thinking about, I haven't seen the new hospitality hub yet, but thinking about that in the Metamorphosis Center, it just, both of them seem to be really specifically designed to support, you know, people's dignity. Yes. And, um, and I remember, and of course, it's always dangerous to read the comments, but and uh, when you're online, but I remember when there was an article about the hospitality hub and there was going to be a, the plaza, there'd be a capacity for food trucks. And some of the comments were food trucks. I mean, of course, why not? Yeah. So it's that idea that, you know, people who are experiencing extreme poverty don't deserve nice things and also that they should be segregated off from the world. Right. You're talking. So where the hospitality hub is located is also just at a major, you know, thoroughfare area of the city that is heavily trafficked by a lot of people who might appreciate a food a food truck or two. So the idea that you provide food trucks and people who are experiencing homelessness, they may be able to eat there, but also other people come. And then all of a sudden you've got people who are experiencing homelessness interacting, sitting and eating with people who aren't. There is no bad that comes out of that. Like that is a good idea you know, to have, to, to stop segregating these communities away so that we don't see them anymore. Like it's uncomfortable. We don't want to see it. Right. That's not the right mentality. So yes, please put food trucks there. It's a great idea. You know? Yeah. And everyone needs shade and everyone needs to charge their phone and everybody needs food and everybody needs a laundry mat, you know, a place to do laundry. And anyway, yeah, everybody deserves nice things. Y'all. And I do. I think one thing that in particular about the, the new hub design for the new shelter, and I'm, I assume for the rest of the plaza, but I know for the for the shelter is that they have incorporated uh, calm. Uh, what do they call it? A trauma informed design into the physical spaces, calm colors, soft lines, quiet spaces, designated quiet spaces so that people, you know, the the just kind of constant trauma of of homelessness, of being on the streets, not having safety, not having quiet, not having stability or calm. These spaces are intentionally designed to foster those feelings. And I think that's really important as well, considering those mental health elements. Sure. Okay. Now I'm really convinced 
we need to do a Memphis metropolis just on that, get the architect and then the organizers of the hospitality hub. Maybe, you know, in a, in a couple of months, um, we'll have them on. And because I'd like to do a little bit of a deeper dive into urban design um, and specifically around design for the homeless population. And trauma-informed design is so fascinating to me, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would make for a great episode. I think so too. And, and we, we need to also just shout out to Brittany Thornton because we had, I had an orange mound show last week, but you know, Brittany Thornton who has her hub um, serving the homeless in orange mound, which was originally a pop-up warming center and now is a longer term um, shelter for homeless residents of orange mound and connecting them with services and really a grassroots effort and kudos to her for just seeing a need and filling it. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm always a cheerleader for Brittany. Always, uh, she's one of my favorite people in terms of people who I think are really making a difference in their piece of Memphis and are, uh, you know, the sorts of people that we should all be paying attention to and lifting up. And, uh, you know, taking their lead. In, and so when I say that, like, I mean, just the dedication to this to this idea. And I mean, it really was just sort of, okay, there was an immediate need. It was an emergent need. And that was safety from snowpocalypse. And then there was just a group of people that uh, they could have shut down. They could have turned their backs on. And that's not what they chose. So it's definitely, I think, uh, you know, a new path that wasn't expected, but it's been um, just, I don't know, inspiring, quite frankly, to watch the progress there and the things that have changed, you know, going from cots to bunk beds to really nice wooden bunk beds, going from a really beginning to establish a system of having sort of uh, some key figures who they're really... Uh, investing to help sort of move uh, into their, to their next goals, whatever those goals might be, you know, and not just being an in and out, but really building a community. Also, they throw parties. They throw great parties like toga parties with decorations. And, you know, there's the garden out, the community garden out in the back, which I've had the, the privilege to do a little assisting on. And, um, you know, they've just, really trying to, again, create community. I think that's so important because when you're, when you're experiencing homelessness, you know, that disconnect from other people is so detrimental and traumatic and, and from community, you know? So I think that's really a key thing that I think people could learn from, from the hub Orange Mound is that community building that they're really investing in. So if you're just joining us, we're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to commentator Cole Bradley, and we're talking about homelessness and new facilities in Memphis to serve the LGBTQ youth, but also some new facilities serving the homeless community, you know, other sectors of the homeless community here. So Cole, so that on that theme of community, let's go back to um, the importance of you know place for the gay community. We were talking about that earlier on before I started recording about Midtown and about um, out Memphis and how there's some it's changed somewhat as um, as places have become less segregated, but how, how place is very important in community and feeling comfortable. Yeah. I think, you know, the gay community has the, the, the queer community, LGBT, there's lots of different ways to, to call it, right. Has a longstanding history of placemaking and space making. So we call it, uh, so this is, I say, we, I'm also in this community, you know, not everybody knows me or can see me, but, um, you know, I am queer, I am a gender pirate, and I've been in this community a long time and studied it as well. You're a gender pirate? Yeah, I say gender I, I, pirate. I, I don't know. I'm ringing my jargon bell. Yeah, the jargon bell. I love the I jargon use, bell. Usually for planning jargon. Yeah. But, um, now but, we're going to do it for gender jargon. Well, I don't, I'm not familiar with that term, so probably yes. other people aren't. So, I mean, I think 
I think, you know, my gender identity stuff is most closely probably akin to the term non-binary, but for a number of very complicated queer theory reasons that we could spend all day on, I don't like that term. I'm more, it's more gender fluid is more the term I use, but I really just like gender pirate. It's a fun term that uh, kind of encompasses the idea of just being off the beaten path of gender, right? You're just kind of renegade of gender. And I think that's really sort of where I fall. I don't, yeah, there's not a boy, not a girl somewhere, somewhere in there. Right. Okay. Uh, and so like, I think I made some joke about my gen, my gender is like three raccoons in a trench coat or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so anyway, so we in the community will refer to things as the gayberhood. And this is in, community or cities all over the country and really the world where you have neighborhoods that are specifically, you know, gay folks kind of flock to, tend to congregate to. And a lot of that has to do with the bars. You know, initially in the very early days, the only safe place to go were the bars. Uh, It was illegal to be openly uh, gay in any way, shape or form. And cross-dressing was policed and even cross-dressing what we would no longer consider cross-dressing. Like, um, you know, a woman wearing pants was considered cross-dressing at the time and was illegal. And so the bars were the only place that you could find community. And eventually the neighborhoods sort of cropped up around the bars a lot in a lot of cases, in most cases. And, you know, the idea was just the rest of the world either didn't understand or was actively hostile And so you create your own communities, you create your own spaces, your own businesses that serve your own community where you can go in, you're not going to get discriminated against or even just looked at weird, you know, you can just exist and feel comfortable in your skin. And so initially it was the bars, eventually neighborhoods started building around it and that included business communities around it like Greenwich Village and stuff Um, And eventually you get politicians and stuff that come out of those two, even representing some of those districts. But now it's really interesting when I did the the story on the last of the gay bars here in Memphis, because gay bars all over the country are just dwindling at a rapid rate. There are very, you know, comparatively very few left. And there was a lot of conversation between the, the bar owners. The two bars here left in Memphis are the Pumping Station and Drew's Place, Drew's Bar. Although I would argue that Drew's is really a community bar for anyone. It just happens to have a lot of gay people and be owned by a lesbian. But other than that, you know, it's really uh, very welcoming. And so is Pump. The Pumping Station is also very welcoming. But there was conversation between the two of them and uh, Alokin with Out Memphis and uh, a few community members around why those bars are dwindling. And by and large, it's because there's been a change of space and place. We have other alternatives like Out Memphis that provides a space for people who don't drink, are too old, are too young to drink, aren't old enough is what I was trying to say, uh, or don't want to, or that's just not what they're going for. And for other purposes besides socialization, um, although the bars were always a place for more than socialization. It's where the it's where everything was organized in those early movements. It was church. It was everything. And so now there's not that. Like there are churches that are open and affirming, you know, queer-led churches. You've got church spaces, you've got community centers, you've got housing now, I think is the new kind of space that we're moving into is providing housing. And so not only do you have metamorphosis, but you've also got like my sister's house here working locally in Memphis, providing housing specifically for uh, trans women of color who are uh, the most disenfranchised. If you were to look at the queer community in a hierarchy of not a hierarchy in good or bad. I mean, a hierarchy of oppression, right? Who's at the very bottom is ter- in terms of who has the access to jobs, resources, who has access to safety, uh, to policy, whatever, you know, the people who are most disenfranchised are absolutely trans women of color. And so anyway, I think there's just a lot going on now that's not the bars. And also you don't have to go to gay bars to be safe. You can go to a bar that's not any, it's just a a bar, any bar, and you can hold hands with your partner uh, and be safe. Not at all of them, 
but there well, are was, some. Well, I was going to say, I mean, to me, that's the, you know, Memphis is very conservative, if you haven't noticed. And I guess I would say to me, that would be the the advantage of going to a gay bar or having it as an option is the the, the, the ability to really express affection and, um, you know, maybe kiss. I mean, I go out to a bar with my husband. We kiss. I mean, we don't get into it, but or we hold certainly hands even just hold yes. hands. something innocuous yes. like holding hands. Yes, and unfortunately, we live in a community where that's going to make some people. I mean, you may people may not care if it makes others uncomfortable, but um, but the um, for that reason, I think I'd be surprised to see. Of course, I've been to Drews. I haven't been to Pumping Station. Those businesses, I had to see them go away because they're great businesses. But um, I'd be surprised to see them go away completely because it just seems like there there's a, could be a venue where people feel like they could really relax. Yeah, and I, I mean that is still the case, right? There, it's not like there. It really is dependent on who you are. Uh, there are many factors: gender, sexuality, race, all sorts of things that play into safety, right? And not every random bar is safe. I personally, I wouldn't feel safe in most bars holding hands or you know kissing my wife. But in some bars that aren't specifically gay bars, I would. And that marks progress. That marks change, right? And I also hope they don't disappear. I feel like in areas like the South, the Deep South, where there is still a lot more oppression and a lot more uh, intolerance and bigotry and safety issues, that they'll stick around longer. It's interesting that the most liberal cities, I think it's indicative of why they're disappearing that the, in the most liberal cities is where they've disappeared the fastest san francisco there are very few left last time i was in san francisco there were no lesbian bars none and that's mecca well but what do you think the same thing is going to happen with neighborhoods i mean when you think about it um i mean even in memphis you know i midtown i guess is still the gay neighborhood but it's not, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely it's the gay, gay neighborhood, because yeah, but there's a crosswalk. So that tells us all we have a, there's a whole crosswalk. It tells well, us. Well, that's true. But I know <laughs> a, a number of gay people who live in Cordova and there are people who live everywhere now. And yeah. same thing with New York city. I mean, yeah, you can go to the village, but you know, there's not like a, it's not like in any areas that are that are just like the gay place. Yeah. And, and I guess I wonder if that's changing as well. I think so. Uh, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to chalk this one up to gentrification uh, in a way. Yeah. Because, you know, the gayberhood is cool, quite frankly. The thing that we, when we look back and we talk about, you know, New York in the sixties and it's Greenwich that they're looking at and it's the gayberhood, right? It's cool. It's trendy. It's hot. It's happening. And anything that's cool, trendy, hot, and happening is also pricey or it starts to be. And so it prices people out. And let us not forget that while there's certainly, you know, the LGBT community plus community is vast in all sorts of diverse ways and economics being one of them, there are plenty of very wealthy people in this community but let us not forget that employment discrimination still runs higher. Housing discrimination still runs higher and, um, you know, gender discrimination too. And that means not just for, um, for trans folks, but also for women, they make less money. And so there are lots of people in this community that do not have a lot of wealth. And so, yeah, maybe you were able to afford a cute apartment in the neighborhood and you were part of the culture that made it so cool and trendy like Cooper Young, for example, uh, super cool and trendy, you know, 20 years or so after it started to become the neighborhood, And now a lot of those people can't afford to be there anymore. So yeah, that, you, you disperse, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I agree that a gayber, the neighborhood is sort of a proxy for um, other community aspects that are desirable, maybe to a more affluent community. I, I know I've told you when I moved to Memphis, in 1992, I had a realtor taking me around, and I just 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 bring me to the gay neighborhood because, <laughs> yeah. that's, because that's where I'm going to live. Because yeah. you know, I was moving to a conservative city, and it was I knew the gay neighborhood is where I was going to find my people, right. which was you know 
open liberal, progressive, yeah. open-minded, probably nice architecture. And, and well-manicured lines. <laughs> well-manicured lines. love a good manicured lawn now. <laughs> all, those, all those stereotypes. But, but having said that, I mean, but it's true. I mean, and pe- people do... Um, people do want that and then they can afford it. And then people, like you said, people who aren't, don't make as much money, um, are sometimes forced out. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're out of time as usual. This was a great discussion. I think we went up on some tangents, but it ended up being very interesting. So we probably wouldn't have done it. We probably wouldn't have done a show on, um, the gay place, uh, for want of a better word, but um, but it turned out to be a very interesting discussion. So Cole Bradley's been my guest on Memphis Metropolis. So thanks for coming back on, Cole. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation. I enjoyed this one. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.